Well, you'll forgive me. I'm not forgetting, putting my, getting my geek on about church planting here this morning. That's why I don't often get asked back to, plan, to preach, because eventually you're going to hear me go full geek with church planting. And I'll try not to get too wonky on you, but I am the director of the Northwest Church Planting Network, which I founded when I, was, when I had a, a regular pastor's job and never thought in a million years that it would be my job job, my calling. And if it ever needed somebody, I, I would have said, well, we better go find someone. And uh, it needed someone and they found someone and, and uh, I'm, I'm very thankful for what we do, uh, but um, I wanna to talk to you about it today because it's important. It's not important whether the network plants churches, uh, it's important whether the church plants churches. So um, with a prayer that we've just offered about doing God's will, let me read these two passages from the book of Acts, and then we'll explore the Spirit's plan. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And now when we go to 14, we're at the end of that first journey. This is when they're on their way back. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must all enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now here's part of the geeky part. I want us to understand what's happened in North America with relationship to church planting in the last 100 or so years. In 1860, about 37%, uh, you're thinking, oh, great, we're going to do statistics. No, I'm really good at statistics. No, I'm not, actually. But, uh, and they're not that interesting, except their significance in really where we are now. 37% of the people in the United States in 1860 would have been caught in a church on a Sunday morning. By 1927, that was 58%. One of the significant reasons for that is that during that century, especially in the latter half, but also some earlier, uh, there was one church planted in the United States for every increase of 300 people in its population. That's a tremendous amount of church planting. I'm gonna let you know now, and I'll be glad to give you the, maybe send it to Dorothy and she can send it out if you wanna join me in my wonkiness. But we need to plant about 8,000 churches a year in America alone in order to keep up with the attrition of churches and the growth of population. So that's why I do church planting. The need is much more significant because contrary to our intuition, when the church in a part of the world retracts and is in decline, 
like it is in the United States, the response should be to engage the mission of God as led by the Spirit of God. Because this idea of planting churches, which this place wasn't, isn't far from, uh, less than a generation ago, that's how the Spirit leads the church. That's the Spirit's plan. The Spirit visits the church and moves it into the mission. That's what we see in the book of Acts. We want to see for a moment how the Spirit leads the church, and then we're going to see how the church follows. So let's take a look, and we're going to go into this passage and then a little ahead uh, in the book of Acts. But I want us to see how they were in the church, Antioch, prophets and teachers, Simon and Lucius and Menaean and, uh, and Saul, and the Spirit visited them in that moment. We're going to see that, that the whole course of all of Paul's great missionary work is three journeys that are recorded in the book of Acts, which tells the story of the church for the first 30 or so years after the ascension of Christ. The Spirit is right at the heart of it. He is moving, and we're going to see how personally he moves in just a little bit. But I want us to see that this isn't new. You remember in uh, the book of Acts, if you're familiar with it, and it's, it's okay if you're not, I can confess now that even though one of my professors is here, that, that I, by the time I walked into seminary on the first day, I had read maybe 20% of the Bible. Dr. Phil just thought, well, that explains a lot <laughs> about Mike and those in that first year. So it's okay if you don't know that it's the story, but in in chapter 2, the Spirit of God comes, and what immediately happens when the Spirit of God is poured out? Peter preaches the gospel. And three or 4,000 are added to their number that day. Jesus had told them in the preceding chapter, you're going to be my witnesses, but you've got to wait for something. What did they have already? They had Christ. They had his instructions. They had been sent on missions before, before he was crucified. What they needed was the Spirit of God to come and lead and empower them. And this becomes the theme um, throughout the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 11, we're told that that the hand of the Lord was on the church and it grew. That's shorthand, pun intended, for the Spirit of God being on the people of God. When um, later on in Acts chapter 11, when they needed to send Barnabas, this guy we've read about just briefly today, to check out what was going on, what's happening with all those Gentiles that just randomly started worshiping Jesus, they sent him because he was, we're told, filled with the Holy Spirit. One of the great marks of a spiritual movement in the church, of the Spirit residing in a church, is that it's engaged in this mission. That's where it starts. Now, my father was uh, provost of a liberal arts school in in St. Louis, and they were very early uh, involved in engaging non-traditional students in the 70s, actually. That is, not 18-year-olds. And they, one of the things they did was they worked with the Air Force very early on how to bring education to Air Force bases. So my dad would just tool around doing stuff like that. And he came back. I'm thinking this was in the early, late 60s, or around 70. He came back wide-eyed. And he was like, we were, we were on, this, on this machine. And, uh, and I was in Chicago. I was playing chess with somebody 
in New York. Well, this is the proto-internet, which the military developed. And, and we were all dumbfounded. This is how things start. The Spirit of God comes, and, and that's a, a picture for what happened in the first 30 years of the church. The Spirit of God came, 30 years, 300 years, and 300 years later, a, a whole nation, give or take, you know, a, a culture is saturated with the gospel. That's what the Spirit does. When the Spirit comes, we grow into, worship, into mission, but we need to stop and say that the, on the way to that mission, there's always what we're doing now. Because when the Spirit comes, the first thing the Spirit does, really in significant ways, in the motion of bringing about mission, is to bring about worship. And that's what's going on in this passage. Um, the people of God are, doing, are liturgizing. That's actually the word. If you ever hear, you get the bulletin, it's got the liturgy, it's got the service in it. It comes right from the word that's used in this passage, that the Spirit of God, when He comes, makes us fall in love with God, and we worship and adore Him. God becomes bigger than our time, bigger than our reputation, bigger than our money, bigger than everything. And, and we're moved into Him. But um, I think in this congregation... You know the centrality of worship. What, what I want you to see is how it's connected with mission. It's a circle. Like, which comes first, the, the mission or the worship? Well, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? It's a, it's a cycle. Mission creates worship. Worship creates mission. That's what we do, back and forth, in a, in a redemptive cycle. You and I are to come to this place and be moved by the greatness of God, that we might go out to that place and serve and love and speak the truth. We're hopefully caught in this cycle. But listen to how intimate and personal. There's some very unique language in this Acts 13 passage. Um, the Spirit says, set apart for me. Of course, we're used to um, missionaries and other people being set apart, That's, that word means to assign a boundary to, to, to set and identify and demark, therefore something special. Another thing that happened in the 60s and 70s, and some of the older folks will know this, this will be new to some others, but like your mom used to buy furniture that no one could use. <laughs> like seriously, that was a thing that was a thing in the 60s and 70s. We would get furniture, they would bring it there, and then there would be a big, like, no one could sit in it. And that wasn't just no one kids. Like, we had a room with furniture in it that no one ever sat in. It was set apart. See, you wonder, where's he going with this? Well, I'm going with being set apart and dedicated for something special. Actually, my parents would occasionally have parties and they would let people sit in it then. In the same way, the Spirit said, for me. And that's the significant uniqueness of this passage. Set apart for me. The Spirit speaks often for God and of God, for Christ and of Christ. But this is one of the few places where the Spirit speaks of himself. 
And he says, part of the work that I'm doing is I will, I will dedicate the resources and the people of the church because when Paul and Barnabas are, are set apart, those are the treasures of the church that are set apart. The, the shepherding, the, the preaching, um, their, their wisdom and knowledge about what should happen in the church, then resources went with them. But the significance of it here is I want you to see that the Spirit intimately involves himself and says, these are for me. And everything attached to them that they'll need is set apart for me. You see, the, the church leads us into his purpose. And his purpose, like his father's purpose, and the son's purpose, is to cover the earth with the glory of the knowledge of God. That's why the Spirit visits this church. Now, thankfully, Mount Vernon is part of the earth that must be covered with the glory of God and the knowledge of God. So you can do your work right here in your neighborhood. But understand that it's also part of this cascading glory of worship that we're sort of bringing the tail end of the day into. It's going to follow or go past us further to the west. But that's what you're part of. The Spirit has set apart the resources and the people of the church to do exactly, exactly that thing. It's really simple. We could find other places in the book of Acts, but I hope that, that we've seen that the Spirit comes all throughout Scripture, especially in the book of Acts, to move us in a mission. And so the Spirit comes to move us into mission. What do we do? Well, we follow, and I want to talk about what that looks like, when the church follows the Spirit into its mission. And the very first thing, the most obvious thing, is that things change and we lose stuff. Treasures. Friends. They just get moved on. You know, the church, the church is an, is a, is an odd creature, as I'm sure you know. And if you're, if you're visiting Exploring Christianity or online, you heard it here from your earliest days. The church is weird and sometimes hurtful. And, and it's, it changes. But we want it to be stable and consistent. We don't want our founding pastor to leave and be called to something else. We, we don't want it to be disrupted financially or in any other way. But right at the heart of the book of Acts, from all of its courses, from the very beginning, the church has been engaged in one disruption after another. It's persecuted. It's out of money. There's, um, its leaders are being sent to different places. The church in the book of Acts doesn't really understand its mission at all at first. And it takes a persecution in Jerusalem to bust them out of like phase one. You know, they would still be there. Like, and so would we. How do we know they'd still be there? Because we're still where we are, right? Because we need to be busted out. But Paul and Barnabas, how would you like to have Paul and Barnabas at your church and then come back the next Sunday and find out that they're leaving? I don't want that. Well, the, the church, 
is sent on a mission that's greater than its parts. And it should not be um, Grace's objective of its leaders or its people to make sure that, that the only thing that matters is steady stability and, um, and prudent stewardship. Do you know how much imprudent poor stewardship is in the book of Acts like, or in the Gospels? Jesus is like, yeah, feed them. And then we don't have enough. And he's feed them anyway. That's not good stewardship. He disrupts. So one of the things that we, we learn, and we've certainly learned it in the network, is that um, it's disruptive. We've had several, four, we've planted by God's grace 20 churches. And we're working on our 21st. And um, we had about four or five, four of them were, were daughter churches. And to a congregation, every one of them afterwards said, we're not doing that again. And of course, they kind of mean it, they kind of don't. They've each been part of planting other churches. But it's, it's super disruptive to plant a church. We, when I was driving through here today, um, I'm reminded, like if you took all the gorgeous mountains away, this would be exactly like the town Sandy and I planted our church in, in, or the Lord's Church in Indiana in 1991 through 95. So imagine Mount Vernon with corn as far as the eye could see. Yeah, and then then you'll imagine, then you'll know why we moved to the Northwest. So the, um, but the the mother church, I found out after I got there that the mother church had promised their people that the church planter wouldn't ask anyone to go with them. Yeah, that's the look that I had. You can't see it online here, but that's the look I had. You can't do what God wants us to do without risk and disruption and loss. It's just impossible. It also, what we'll find out, and, and, uh, and this is true, by the way, not just of church planting, but, but church continuing, <laughs> you know, uh, and saying they encourage them in, in chapter uh, 14 now, we're going to jump down to, that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. One of the reasons I think that the North American church has retracted and lost some of its vitality is that it's lost some of its courage because we were ensconced in positions of authority, culturally and otherwise. And in church for us became the avoidance of tribulations. But that's not, how, that's not how the mission works. It's a tribulating mission. I, I think that I just made that a verb, but, but you understand what I mean. It's, it will become increasingly challenging to become a Christian in North America. Um, but that doesn't make us unique. That starts to make us more like the church. It's hard not to have a pastor. It's hard to go through COVID. It's hard to be married when you don't get along with your spouse. It's hard to be a parent when your child is sick or when they're wandering. It's hard to do this. Jonathan Edwards, one of my great heroes who found a, a type of spiritual lesson in everything, he said that, that uh, gravity, when you go uphill, is given to teach us that it is, 
it is challenging to ascend to heaven. I'm like, all right, John, I get it, but really I don't get it. But maybe so. So one of the things that the, the church has done, not surprisingly, church planting um, drastically declined after the Depression and then World War II. And when we came back from World War II, we had the only economic system and structure that wasn't decimated. And we all got super rich relative to the rest of the world. And um, Christianity and its church form started to uh, calcify in a way, but really just it was ensconced. By the way, I, I don't, I, I'm trying not to just totally lose you with, with all the things that I'm fascinated with, but, uh, but it's, not a, it's not an accident that the idea of parachurch ministries exploded after that when the church stopped planting churches. And I'm not against parachurch ministries, although I'm not in them. I became a Christian. Both times I became a Christian were parachurch ministries. <laughs> Young Life and then Campus Crusade. I just did it till it stuck. By the way, it, that only happens once. I don't want anybody asking me afterwards. But anyway, it was uh, my experience of it was that it took a couple tries. So um, what I want us to see is this, it causes change. When the Spirit's here, He will change things. And it, it will be difficult. The church is often difficult. But also, and this is where it gets challenging for, especially, you know, down in Seattle, um, we, we have a you know, pretty different culture, as you know, than, than up here, speaking in general terms. But um, one of the things that people love in Seattle is like, just everything has got to be organic and relational. And, you know, who doesn't? Raise your hand if you don't like organic and relational. No one's going to raise their hand for that, except well, maybe a couple. The, um, but, but the fact of the matter is, you can see in this passage something significant about the church. That the church that is planted by the Spirit has structure and organization and leadership. Where do we see that? Well, they appointed elders in every church. Remember, they're going back. So I'm going to do a little visual for you. They went on their journey. This is Paul and Barnabas going on their journey. And they they planted churches in all these communities. And then they had to go back. So they went back the same way. and, And at every one of them, they engaged in more ministry. And one of the things that they did was they appointed elders. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that that the church from its earliest days had structure and hierarchy. It was an institution from the beginning. And I love you about once a year in Seattle, I use the I word at church and uh, and watch, you know, 20 somethings just like jump out of their seat. Yes, it's it's meant to be a body that has shape and authority has structure. Think about it. The church has a body of belief that you must adhere to. 
It has a code of behavior that you must adhere to. Even Jesus did, Paul did. All the people that knew about grace also knew about how to behave in grace. And it had boundaries, like who was part of it and who wasn't. So we're not talking about Paul and Barnabas going all through the book of Acts and just creating these amorphous amoeba koinonia fellowships that just love each other and just do stuff in their houses, which is all cool. You should love each other and do stuff in your houses. We're not against that. But this is why we can say with such confidence that the New Testament spiritual pursuit of the mission is not simply evangelism, but it's establishing new churches. So what do those new churches do? Well, this is where we get back to full circle again. Because listen to what Paul does when he goes back to them. This never-ending cycle of discipleship and encouragement. They um, were told when they preached the gospel in the city and made many disciples, they returned. And what did they do? Strengthening the souls of disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and preparing them for trials. The engine that drives the spiritual, um, operational, and financial elements of the kingdom of God is this local congregation of believers. Just like this. I will, I will be very clear with young pastors that I work with. Young pastors and their families, that's the job. That's the center Guys like me who threw their arm out and, you know, the, the owner of the team liked me, so they gave me a good front office job. They, we're doing secondary things. They're on the mound every week. You are at the center of what the Holy Spirit is doing. Look around you at this place. Is this place spectacular? Is Grace a spectacular church? Yes. Will Grace be um, at the center of the next conference on spectacular churches? No. But, but grace exists because the Spirit of God moved some 25 years ago. And you should ask yourself, what about now? Well, just give me a, let me give you a few lessons about now, a few encouragements about now. First of all, um, 8,000 churches a year is what I meant earlier, not over the next 30 years. 8,000 churches a year. So think about how you might be part of that. Big ways, small ways. But remember, too, that um, I live in the city. I love city ministry, but I didn't drink the city Kool-Aid the city ministry Kool-Aid that has gone through the church for all these years. Jesus went to all kinds of towns and villages, and our network is committed to planting churches in places like Sandy and I planted in Indiana, like Mount Vernon, all over the Northwest. God loves towns and cities. So be encouraged about that. Second thing I would 
encourage you about is that when it gets hard, that doesn't mean something wrong has happened. It does not mean if you do a work that doesn't work or you do a work that barely works or you do a work that you wish you didn't do, (laughs) that doesn't mean that something wrong happened. It means that church happened through many tribulations. You you know, I'll tell the secret now, but we've got to edit it off the video. Um, We have, in the last 20 years, planted 21 churches, but we've had four that didn't work. And the amount of money that we spent on four churches that didn't work will raise your eyebrows. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. But that's not even, that's not even the price. When a church doesn't work, the people that were involved in it are discouraged. The minister and his family experience emotions that you can imagine about who they are and who they aren't. The only way to know for sure that that will never happen again is for us to not plant the church again. That's how to do that. And that's not going to be our plan. So let me say one more thing, and this is something that we're very passionate about, and then I'll tell you a story about a flight to San Francisco, and we'll, we'll move to the supper. One of the things um, that we start to see in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas are set aside, and they do ministry together, and then there's a little disruption, and Paul goes on. And you can start to see in the rest of the New Testament how Paul starts to raise up one after another a a second and third generation of church leaders. That's what this congregation can be part of in prayer right now. You know, there was uh, maybe today in this building, I imagine there might have been or there might be, but all over the Northwest, there were 10-year-olds in church this morning bored out of their minds and in 25 years these men are going to be preaching and their wives are going to be involved in ministry and they'll be boring some 10-year-old kid out of his mind because that's where leader families come from They come from right out here. And 125 years ago, if you grew up in the church, you knew at some point at a retreat or a conference or missions week, you were going to be asked if you were called into missions. And we did that a lot, and some people answered the wrong bell. Okay? That is not our problem now. Our problem is that we're not asking, where's Timothy coming from? Where's Titus coming from? Where's the next generation of leaders coming from? You can pray about that right now in your own families. I don't know if your children are called to enter into missions or church planting or or ordained ministry. I don't know, but I do know that you should be praying about it. And I'll tell you why. 
because there's a lady from San Francisco that I flew down there with once and and I was excited because there's a middle seat and I just don't like talking on airplanes and so I thought oh good I don't have to talk to anybody and then I thought well you're a pastor you should want to share the gospel and I thought yes I should Um, I still don't want to but I should and um, and this lady started a conversation with me and um, she was seemed sweet at first and uh, so I'm just talking to her and we're flying down there going to San Francisco and she and finally she asked that question that most ministers don't like to be asked what do you do for a living Um, and uh, that's hard enough to answer when you actually have a church but like I'm leading a church planning network and how do you explain that like and I said well you know I got her I said well we we uh, help people start new churches and she looked right at me and said, too bad for you. That's a dying industry. And she just kept going after that. Well, it's a good thing we believe in the resurrection, but we also believe in the church. You and I live in the most age of the most explosive growth in the history of Christianity is happening as you sit here in worship over the last hundred years, all over the world, except in Mount Vernon and Seattle and in Portland. The Spirit will lead us into what to do about that. We should just be faithful. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercies. I, I pray that you would help us. Help us to love your word love this community, love our neighbors, and speak the truth in that love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.